Welcome to the Theology Pugcast, and uh, we are broadcasting, or pugcasting, or podcasting, or however you say it, from the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut, and this is C.R. Wiley, and I'm joined by my friends like I am every week, and I'll let them introduce themselves. So, Glenn, let's start with you. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I'm Thomas Price, systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary as adjunct professor. And I'm C.R. Wiley, the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. And today, uh, we wanted to say a couple of things about our recording equipment. Last week, we used it and it worked. And we've gotten some good feedback on it. And uh, people who have uh, you know, been concerned about the, uh, the, reco- the, the quality of our recordings have responded positively. I even saw on iTunes a guy changed his rating from two to five <laughs> just based on that episode. And that's very positive. Yeah. Now, uh, speaking of that, you know, you know, we're not like super marketing gurus or anything like that, but according to the rumors I've heard, if you give a po- podcast a, uh, you know, a positive rating, it uh, sort of raises its level in, in the search engine on, on that particular, uh, you know, platform, whether it's iTunes or Anchor or whatever. So if you like our show, uh, please give us a uh, five star or a thumbs up or whatever they have <laughs> for a positive rating. If you don't like our, 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 our podcast, just stop listening. <laughs> no one makes you listen. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> so with that with that behind us, um, now it's uh, it's as as our list regular listeners know we go around the horn and each of us gets a turn to have the subject of the day and today is Tom's day. So Tom, what do we talk about a today? A great one to listen to. All um, right. We're going to be actually uh, revisiting a theme that we visited uh, a couple weeks ago, but we're going to be bringing it into a, a different period of time and into the present in a, a distinct way. So we're going to be talking about um, the way in which the church, um, when it engages um, societal evil or political evil or uh, evil within a nation, especially its power structures, what it's called to resist or confess the faith looks like in, that, in that, those contexts. And so the context we're going to be uh, looking at as the example uh, this time is going to be take us back to 1934 right at the heart of National Socialism and its rise to power in Germany. You mean the real Nazis? The real Nazis. And uh, yeah, it's interesting, before we get into that, as, as, many, uh, as many know, if you don't like someone nowadays or what they think, you're usually labeled a Nazi. I, I think maybe the, the, the kind of um, symbolism there may still speak that it is so horrendous that you use that for something you don't like. Right. But it oftentimes was so qualitatively different, the kind of suffering and struggle that people misuse it so much. But we can return to yeah, that. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's been cheapened. It's almost like it has no power anymore. That's right. That's right. And so back in 1934, the reason I'm picking that particular date was May of 1934 in particular, there was a, a group of... 139 actually, delegates of the 19 territorial churches in Germany, Lutheran, Reformed, and the United Church, which tended to bring the Lutheran and Reformed into one synod or or body. 
Um, these delegates met uh, in, in the German Rhineland city of Barmen. And they didn't realize so much at the time that they were literally taking a historic stand for the faith of, of the church um, by what they were doing, but they were also placing themselves in a position of great risk because they were actually drawing the line somewhere. And uh, at this point, though, they were just simply reacting to what was both a political and a theological crisis. On the political side, um, of course, we know what was coming about. But one of the things that they really saw the connection to was that for 200 years in Germany, there had been a weakening of Christian witness and Christian um, public expression because of what we now know today is theological liberalism, the way in which it sort of allowed for a culture religion, a, a certain kind of natural theology that, that Bart will be very against, for example, to, to domesticate the historic Christian faith and therefore weaken its ability to actually um, shape, challenge, and direct the church um, at, the, at times like the, the political crisis that arose. And another connection was made at this time in which they really saw that the political symptoms were a direct result of the theological weakening. Now, now this is a, maybe a good point to, to raise a, an observation that maybe you are intending to get to, Tom, and I'm stealing your thunder. <laughs> I know, but but this, uh, this theological liberalism was, uh, you know, in the 19th century in particular, designed to keep Christianity relevant. Yes, yes, yeah. That's right. I think it is a good time to kind of talk about what was going on there, and I think we all can probably sh share in on this. Um, in Germany in particular, I mean, you're talking a, a place that was at the heart of the Reformation. I mean, you have, you know, Luther is a symbolic figure, not merely of the theological heritage, but also the cultural and religious heritage. So it is easy to see how the cultural religion um, started to, to see itself almost as, you know, a genuine Christian form to which Christianity needed to, to accommodate itself to. Um, but you can also start to see what dangers lie therein because the cultural religion itself is not being directed per se by the historic Christian faith so much as the historic Christian faith starts to be continuously redefined based on the different shifts and movements that that cultural religion takes. You know, that sounds awfully familiar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wrote an article at one point. Uh, that was really aimed at the, what was then known as the emergent movement. Right. Hmm. Uh, I called it reinventing the flat tire. <laughs> um, because what, what was happening, when you take a look at the rise of, of Protestant liberalism, a lot of it is coming up in, as a way of trying to respond first to the Enlightenment, but then to the rise of modern science and scientism. Mm -hmm. And what they wanted to do, in essence, was to say, okay, we'll give science the physical world. Yeah. We'll let them explain that. Religion has nothing to do with that, which is why you've got the allergy to natural theology. Yeah. But then along with that, they, they then had to try to carve out a place for faith. Right. So Schleiermacher mm -hmm. said that, you know, okay, we can get knowledge about the world through, through science and we'll, we'll let them have that, but there are other kinds of knowledge that you can get 
from religion that are different qualitatively from what you get from science. Mm -hmm. Basically, what he was talking about is religious experience. Right. So religious experience then, oddly enough, Schleiermacher, the father of liberal Christianity, is pushing the idea of religious experience as the foundation for religious faith, which is exactly what American evangelicals tend to do. That's yeah, exactly right. And interestingly, and this will t this ties in even back to the Barman time, because we'll get to Karl Barth, and as evangelicals, um, we may have a love-hate relationship with Barth. We can get to that. But one of the things Bart was directly doing his theology against is in trying to work out of, because he was formed by it, is Schleiermacher's view. Mm. And what was one of uh, Schleiermacher's famous works, but um, religion for the cultured despisers. So he wanted the cultured, the elite of the day, to reconsider Christian faith, and a Christian faith, as you mentioned, that was, um, you know, um, gutted of, of its essence and core and brought down to something like an aesthetic or, or, or an experience and that that religious experience actually started to take on more and more of a cultural experience because culture was kind of the shared religious um, collective view of a people and therefore it became the place at which the culture despises no longer had to push religion up because we all experience absolute dependence and we all are people who produce culture in relationship to it. So Schleiermacher really did um, immanentize, that is, make religious experience the place in which God could be felt, and then he really made the conditions available for culture to become sort of the, the, the main context for that to be. Yeah. We actually have to go back a little bit further, too. There's a guy in the 18th century named Johannes Zemmler, mm. who is the founder, really, of uh, comparative religion among other things. Hmm. He was, he grew up in a Lutheran home at a point when Lutheran scholasticism, Protestant scholasticism was strong, but he was heavily influenced by the pietists. And then you had rising uh, enlightenment rationalism. And he sort of combines all of them together in hmm. his approach. He's early on in uh, a sort of higher critical mode. Um, he's rejecting um, uh, mythologizing in scripture, all of these kinds of things. Hmm. And the interesting thing about him, this is why reinventing the flat tire, the, the, the interesting thing about him is what he did worked for him. I don't doubt that Zemmler had some kind of, of, of a living yes. faith based right. on his yeah. pietistic background primarily. Sure. But the next generation that didn't have that kind of experience right. lost their faith. And that's what sets you up into the 19th century Protestant liberalism. So when you get liberalizing movements in evangelical churches that are increasingly throwing their lot in with the culture, rejecting historic Christian values, rejecting elements of historic Christian faith, all that kind of thing, it may work for them. Yeah. But they they are setting up the next generation to leave the faith altogether. Yeah. That's what that's what happened with Zemmler. Yeah, that leads you into the era of Schleiermacher and these other guys, which makes it even worse. And it's exactly the 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 route that a lot of these uh, groups are going in today, and they don't even know it. And it's interesting. I mean, I, I think Zinzendorf is another figure that was oh, like yeah. this as well. They were they were um, like trying to hold on to a vibrant living faith, but they set the conditions for a Schleiermacher. And if I re recall. Schleiermacher, it was Schleiermacher who was very deeply impacted. I, I have to go back and look at that. It's been a while since I've worked through that part of, uh, of his history. But, but I do know uh, that Karl Barth actually, a lot of his first 
and second commentary in Romans, uh, well, he did a first commentary that was sort of the first bombshell, but the second was the real bombshell. He, he basically cut the, the tie between um, Schleiermacher and Christianity once and for all. And of course, he wanted to go back and, and, and retrieve historic Christian faith, although he, he carried, I think, too much of the Enlightenment back with him. Right, right. Um, Nevertheless, one of the things that he really saw at the heart of that was that, that, that way in which Christianity had been domesticated. Mm-hmm. And uh, an interesting point, this is going to take us a little bit back to Barman, is, is one of the things that um, Bart, it, it really severed his tie with theological liberalism was the First World War. Mm-hmm. Because here was the enlightened so-called Christian liberal right. um, you know, exemplar, Germany. Right. And Adolf von Harnack, who is one of the leading um, historians of church, uh, teaching dogmatics, Christian faith, but a historic, classical liberal. I mean, if you want to look at what Christianity is in liberalism, it's right. it's von Harnack, and, and one of Bart's teachers. And when he signed on to the war policy, um, German Germans' war policy in World War One. That was it for Bart. Yeah. And I believe Bart wrote a letter. Bart's a Swiss. They re- tried to remain lootful, of course. Right. But he was like, how could you sign, sign on to this? And, and the, this was the reply that Bart got. Well, because you're Swiss and you're not a German Christian, you don't understand the experience yeah. of German Christians. Yeah. And, and Bart's response was, this isn't German Christianity. This is Wotan, the war god. Uh, uh. And so this is where you started to see a tension rise up, and right. really probably one of the only alternative Christian voices around that. Now, let's go to the evangelicals in Germany at the time. Very complicated situation, but a lot of the evangelical churches in Germany at the time of the rise of National Socialism went along with it. Right. And they went along with it because they saw this, they, they saw, you know, the, both the combination of the history of ideas in, in Germany, especially Hegel's impact, we, can, we can't get to that now, right. and the way in which uh, Adolf, Adolf Hitler, the other Adolf going on in this, was constantly referring to Geist and Providence. Yeah. And they argument was this is the next wave of the spirit. Mm. And, and those m- m- motivated by this kind of lack of biblical yeah. discernment right. just got and I, I think I think it would be good to make a distinction between evangelical churches in Germany and yes. what we know at a popular level here. So yeah. how, 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 how can we distinguish those? Um, I, I know there's a difference. But yes, um, they, they, they would share the kind of um, sort of pietistic roots and experiential um, faith. Where they differed is evangelical in Germany would refer main, more similarly to what we would call mainline. Right. Yet mainline that were still wanting to hold to their confession, not Right. to be pluralists. Right. So this would be, uh, you know, this would be a group of, of just, I think, you know, kind of Adolf von Hark, you know, von Harnackian influence kind of people. Um, I'll never forget one time I was in Christchurch, Oxford, and I was going to see my, my late supervisor, John Webster, for a tutorial, and this uh, little old guy walks out of the corner who was obviously a scholar of, of New Testament, he was going to Christ Church Chapel, and uh, John Webster looked at me and said, that's a godly old liberal. And I think this is what, I think this is what we would, would mean. A, a, I know exactly what he, what he was getting at. I've yeah. known those guys. Yeah, people committed to the, the, the confession, 
even though they were influenced by the Enlightenment, and it really was in that piety and that feeling of faith that they put all their stock, yeah. and, it, and it did motivate them. Yeah, so this is a very, very alien world to probably all of our listeners. Yes, that's right. <laughs> this, yeah. this, this, this sort of world of, you know, observant, pious, now, many of them are dead now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, we were on the tail end of, 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 of you know, their time. Mm -hmm. uh, and we got to see the monster rising yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in the 80s and 90s that we live with today. But those, a lot of those guys were good guys at a personal level. Uh, they were generous in spirit. Yeah. They would listen. You know, they would concede points, unbelievable. And they, they did their homework and studied. They yeah. were not people who had, you know, shoddy scholarship. And, right. and actually, to this very day, even if you, you don't go their theological direction, you cannot do good scholarly work without having considered what they've written. Because a lot of times, they illumine points that no one else does. Right. And they put their whole heart into it. There's yeah. their piety. I, yeah, yeah I, I, I studied with uh, somebody like that when I was at Michigan State, and yeah. you're right, that, that that's a very apt description of him. He described himself as a 19th century liberal existentialist with orthodox tendencies. Which means basically he was neo-orthodox, heavy on the neo. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and, and, pro and probably he had a, a childhood in which he was brought to church, went to Sunday school, <laughs> loved his mom and dad, you know, all this kind of stuff, yeah. and, and enjoyed just a number of things that many people today just can't imagine. You know, he took for granted. Yeah, I know these are the, these are the things I yeah. know about these guys. Yeah. They don't realize, they, they, didn't, they didn't know that they were bringing into the, into the, into the world a monster. Yes. And uh, they had all the best intentions. Yeah. And that, that Zemmler in the next generation after him, except it just keeps getting worse. Yep. Um, generation by generation. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you, you see this, I mean, anytime you study in the, in, uh, in, well, U.S. denominations, for example, and we'll get to that whole problem of denomination in a little bit as well. But when you start to study that, especially during that period, um, when people wanted to hold on to the piety and the, and the, the beauty of their Christian tradition and experience, and yet wanted to accommodate it to to make it plausible to the culture despisers. Yeah. This is and there's always this theme of accommodating and domestication, and I think this is what we're always wrestling against as Christians, because we do have to speak, uh, you know, an eternal word, word word into a temporal context always. Right. And because of that, it's always shaped by and impacted by that. But where that balance is, is what historic Christianity has kind of drawn some lines around and said this yeah. points at which the accommodation goes too far. And so in 34, this is what the 139 right. delegates were saying, this goes uh, too far. And what they came to is something that was called the Theological Declaration Concerning the Present Salvation of the German Evangelical Church. Wow. What we call Awful. now today the Barman Declaration. Right. And, and really, if you want to get to the heart of the call, and I, I, you know, I have it have it with me, but I'm not going to go read through each step. It would be good for listeners to look up uh, Google or whatever sure. you use, whatever your safe user <laughs> is, um, engine, and look up the Barman Declaration and read the whole thing, because I think it is, it, it really is a telling statement, um, and, but it's also one that I think wants to remain faithful. So, but how long is it, just so people know? It's not very long at all. I think you can, you could read, the, from, from what you see in most public, uh, you know, public, uh, 
posted formats. It's it's something they can read in 20 minutes, maybe okay. 15. Okay. Um, but what the the core maxim is fidelity to scripture at a time when um, you would ex, you know expect uh, pretty much minimum support from the culture. Right. And so Barman Declaration set out uh, a collision course not only with the government um, but also the fundamental assumptions of the the academic theology that had been going on for 200 years. And so what was at the heart of it is, well, we've turned from the true God, and by doing that, we're bringing about our self-destruction. That's what this political crisis is. Mm. So for them, to be simplistic, when we've turned away from the absolute authority of the Lordship of Christ, as Scripture attests to it and sets out the parameters for it, what we do is we unleash the conditions for the political crisis that is developing with National Socialism. Now let's expand this a little bit. Yeah. You know, the Nazis weren't the only totalitarian movement to, to arise in Germany. We've got the Marxists, Marx, yep. German guy. Yep. So when, when a when Christian culture loses its, its grounding or its, trans, its transcendent uh, orient, you know, sort of the canopy, you know, the, uh, the sacred canopy that it looks to above it to, to orient itself, what happens? Mm -hmm. You end up with this kind of stuff. And, um, it, you know, related to what, what does it mean to be relevant in a, in a situation like this? These guys were relevant. Yeah. You know, the guys who wanted to go along with the Nazis, they were not relevant. They were collaborators. They were, they were, they were complicit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, now, did that mean that everybody who signed the Barman Declaration had tremendous church growth because... That's right, that's right. Well, that's one of the things, and, and I'm, I'm quoting, a, I'm actually reading from an article by uh, a Princeton Seminary professor. I imagine George Hunzinger is on, on the line. No offense, George, if you're out there, but you're on the line of retirement. Um, but he wrote something, Bart Barman in the Confessing Church Today. Now, this was in 1984, so I was 14, <laughs> just so you know. And this was the, I think, the 50th anniversary. Now, George Hunziger is a great Bart scholar, and he's someone who would take kind of the Bardian position in all of these. When, when George Hunziger wrote this article, he was trying to relate it to the American context and it, the implications of 1984. And he was already saying that the, you know, by the standards of, you know, of what was going on then, the American context was far more ambiguous and far more problematic yeah. on many levels than Germany, who had still had something of a definable culture in place and, and, and less ambiguity. Of course, what Hunzinger's concern was, um, was much more tied to American nationalism and imperialism and the you know the use the use of kind of power and so what is the church's response for? Hey Chris, hey Chris, um, to that power. But you, you had a question before that. I, I kind of went off on a tangent. No, I get basically I not, you know it was just an observation that uh, you know getting back to this whole question of relevance and what oh. what we expect to fo to follow. Yeah. You know the prophets were relevant. Yeah. They were terribly unpopular too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh yeah, and that yeah, that was that was kind of where where I should have went with it. And so what it meant when they took the, these one thirty nine took their actual stand here is it was of utmost risk because not only would most of them probably be losing their positions yes in the church, but they also uh, some of them like in Karl Barth's case he was kicked out of Germany, um, and at first Barth even admitted he said that. 
I didn't critique things far enough on the political side. I would challenge the overreach into the church, but I did not actually define and delineate the places at which um, the German political apparatus was delving into heinous evils in the earliest stages. And this is going to be one of the criticisms. Um, do, do, does our theological drawing of limits also entail very specific political um, actions that need to be clear and defined, or does it just leave it ambiguous? Because this is going to be one of the problems there. But, but this whole issue of, of relevance, um, this is what these figures were moving against. We could no longer try to make a Christianity relevant other than relevant to the situation and crisis that we have because we actually have to speak a true word into it. And because we have to speak a true word, it means when we take this stand, it means risking everything. Because when we come against what has become such a powerful ideology and a powerful political force, this small group of confessional Christians is not only on the minority, but pushed to the margins and actually had to become an underground movement. Right. And most of its actions had to take place there. But one of the things that they saw, and I think we need to recapture, is that at the heart of the political symptoms um, is a theological crisis. And that right. theological crisis is the setting of, uh, uh, you know, it's making fertile ground by trying to be so relevant and so cool and so um, accommodating that we therefore have given up the core things that delineate Christianity from everything else. Right, right. Yeah, I, it, you know, I've, I've been thinking a little bit about uh, obviously how this relates to some things that are going on within my denomination, the, the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. The, uh, the seminary, that uh, is our denominational seminary, Covenant Seminary, uh, doesn't have a systematic theology department. What it has is missional theology. Now, missional is a word that has become as repellent to me <laughs> as the word relevant <laughs> has become. It, it's, it's, what, what, we, what we have is kind of this sort of a, I don't know, this uh, slavish and... Uh, sort of uh, hand-wringing that goes on in, in various circles. How can we, you know, do something that helps, you know, gets people to think of us in a positive way or consider us, you know, relevant to their lives and that kind of thing. Rather than thinking about what's reality and perhaps uh, the entire, you know, sort of contemporary way of life, inclu including the cool group or the cool table or the cultural influences, influencers or whatever, however you want to talk about it, new class or whatever, maybe they're all damned. Maybe, maybe their entire project is rotten to the core. Yeah. You know? Well, no. You know, the interesting thing is right now, Christianity's expanding faster than it ever has in history. Right. All of that is happening in the global south. Right. Which is what we used to call the developing. We used to call it the developing world or the third world. They call it the global south now. Okay, how are they doing it? Number one, they're relying on prayer because they don't have any other any resources resource. to work on. Right. Number two, they don't have. They can't afford consultants, so they simply 
obey what they see in Scripture. They do it the way Jesus told us to. And as a result, they get really seriously missional in ways that are really seriously relevant. Mm -hmm. But the whole point is for them, use these, they call them access ministries, to get to communities that are unreached, to find the people that God has placed there that are spiritually open. You don't try to make it happen. You don't try to figure out how are we going to tailor our message to reach this group. It's, we are going to serve them until we find the person that's spiritually open and we'll, that God's placed there and we'll work with that. Totally different outlook. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think and, and I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's, there's a lot of baggage going on in that term, mission and missional. And, and I think, I mean, one of the things you see from an, on an academic side is you see this shift from what historically was called dogmatic theology. It's mm -hmm. a big term. Germany was steeped in it at one time. Mm -hmm. right, right. And it really had to do with the, the actual unpacking the, the essential doctrines that Christians believe, that the dogma. And this is an opinion. These are the, the church's accepted teachings. So it would be taking the Trinity and unpacking that, its significance for all things. And so systematic theology and dogmatic theology kind of worked hand in hand in, in that time. Well, systematic theology became kind of looked at very negatively because it started to get tied up to this Hegelian notion that you could have this core idea and deduce from that every all of reality. So you could take, for example, in Christianity, you could take doctrine and justification by faith, make that the core doctrine, and then sort of unpack everything. So it has a bad name, systematic theology, because it's tied to that idealistic problem. But anyway, biblical theology comes into that picture and says, well, wait a minute, we're not going to look at the dogma of the church as it's already been developed, the systematic theology and its abstractness. We're going to get right back down to the Bible. So everyone's on board, especially in the evangelical world. And so that becomes sort of the, the, the place of emphasis. Well, missional theology grows as a next way of being a much more concrete type of theology brought right back down to as specific as you can get it context in the Bible applied to context. So this is where you bring context and um, all of its relativi all of its relativities um, back into the, th the, the theological reflection and therefore you start to emphasize culture again. Right. You start to em emphasize what, what is the moving and shaping of culture and it starts to almost function as an authoritative other to which scripture has right. to match itself. Right, and, that, and that, yeah. that's, that's precisely the problem that when you, yeah. when you spend so much time working with, all right, how do, it, it stops being how do we reach the culture yeah. and it starts being how do we work within the culture. Yeah, how do we and, and as soon as you, you go to work within the culture, you're, you're accepting and assuming all of the culture's presuppositions, their values, their priorities, and so on, which leads you to all kinds of compromise, which is exactly what the non-confessing church in Germany did. did. And, and I'll give you an example of it where it kind of raised my antenna. I'm not going to name names, but it was local, and I was in a church context <laughs> that was local. And one of the things I remember from the pulpit specifically saying is, we, we want to stay a, as far away from Christian ease as we can in, the, in, in our preaching and in our services. So in other words, let's put all of our doctrinal distinctives and our doctrinal language on the side because we have a better way of communicating that truth than the one that has been hammered out through the Holy Spirit's action within the church across time.
Right. Well, and there, there's a, there are just a number of problems with this. I, I had this very thing come up in my church when I, in my last church, not the church I'm in now. I had a uh, an associate pastor who was about 30 years older than me, but I was 30 years older than him mentally. <laughs> and uh, his he, that was his that was his shtick, you know, the idea that more or less words are meaningless, or you know. And, so, so where does the source of meaning come from? It, it's never really sort of a sort of de developed or explained. It just sort of is emoted. And he said, you know, why why do we want to use terms like sanctification or <laughs> propitiation or whatever? You know, when we can use other words. And I said, well, because words mean things for one thing, but also, you know, we can actually help people understand by defining them. We can actually shape the vocabulary of a culture, not just simply go along with the vocabulary. You mean you can educate people? Yes, that's well, that amazing. Was, that was my point. Rather than educate, describing and educating people into, which I've always considered to be the point of discipleship. Right. <laughs> anyway, right? Teaching them, them all the things I taught you, right? right, right, right. Um, and so, yeah, so in... Now, now in, in, in defense here, mm -hmm. there is a kind of Christianese that's sort of an evangelical jargon thing. Yes. That, that where you're not dealing with categories like sanctification or That's propitiation right. yeah. or whatever. Yeah. There, there is a kind of yeah. Christianese that is yeah. trendy. Kind of a, and, well, and, and there is. And there, there is a, there are like pocket cultures. Right. I mean, you think of like, the, you know, sort of Pentecostal circles right, where you right, have, right. you know, certain things. But on the other hand, I don't know how I've far we for really you, should. I've got a burden for you, brother. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm carrying a burden with you. Know, or, or, if, or what I'd like to see is people who are praying, look up the definition of the word just. We just want to ask you for this, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. we just want to ask you for that, and pretty soon you've just asked him for one yeah. thing at a time, and you've gotten 30 of them. Yeah. And now we know where the hymn, just as I am. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, I, I think, again, these these may be, you know, there, there may be, there. I, like with all heresies, there is usually always a, a you know a pint of truth—not <laughs> a full keg, but a pint—and and so yeah, I, I can I can you know I can affirm that you know I do know that sometimes the cultural you know the pocket cultural lingo of a small Christian communities, for example, becomes uh, such that people that you're trying to reach feel so outside of that they they just. Uh, you know, it's it's almost like, you know, the first time I went to take a seminar at Duke, and <laughs> um, they were talking um, postmodern critical theory for the first time, and they were so fluent in it, and I didn't know what was going on. But the difference was Duke didn't actually accommodate me. Right. I actually went and picked up textbooks yes. and had to learn it. Otherwise, I wasn't going to do well. So I don't know where that. And, and I think there's also a difference. There's one thing that is the the kind of carrying on of the church. And and it's it's culture and discipleship. I think that, I think those things tend to get blurred in a lot of evangelical mm -hmm. because what we do is we make the church service strictly understood almost in a revivalist sense as a a, right. a, a service to the outsider rather than a worship service. Right. Um, right. Word and sacrament. And right. my reform side is going to say, no, wait a minute. The the, the church is predominant emphasis should be word and sacrament and then discipleship well you may be able to kind of take some of those those considerations there 
Um, but before we leave all together, yes. the, the kind of barman, you we mean, need to get back. You mean we haven't? We haven't. But anyway, I mean, one of the things uh, George Hunzinger said in, into his defense I thought was pretty good is, is some of the implications we can learn now um, from, you know, and, and, and it kind of reveals, especially in political crises like we are seeing in the West in particular, is that, the, you know, these are symptoms of, of a deeper crisis. And, yes. and we've been talking about this. And, and one of the things he, you know, to his credit, he says, none of us are immune. So I may not have agreed with all he, you know, of his kind of critique of, of you know, the politics at that at the time he wrote the essay. One of the things he said, one of the big um, points that we need to get over is we need to we need to actually believe that the subject matter of theology is a matter of life and death. Mm. And he he was sitting here and basically making the case that we often are immune to the fact. We just think theology can kind of be brushed to the side and we can deal with things without it. But it actually is a matter of life and death. This is what the people at Barman recognize. And they, a lot of them would have put their life at risk. Many of them did and did die. Um, we see this also in, you know, in, in Russia, different places. Right. Um, but but this, is, this is a point. And that it does not make, um, you know, the other criticism that he wants to say is that we need to get over the sense that Christianity and theology um, actually are making binding truth claims. There is a place at which we draw the line. These are binding. These are not things we can play with. They're not relative. Mm -hmm. um, and that we're going to be forced to take a stand at some point. Right. And one of the things he brought in is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's visit to the United States. Now, Bonhoeffer was a student of Barthes, and um, he was someone who grew up in a very elitist academic world. I believe his father was a famous psychologist, and he himself grew up in liberal Protestantism. Mm -hmm. But he had, a, he had I, I would say, a, you know, a very profound conversion to a kind of confessional evangelical Christianity. It wouldn't look like the American stamp. It actually had more of a theological logical substance on one angle, but then it would have had a little bit of the shaping of, of the liberalism from, from Germany at the time. Right. But one of the, his big critiques when he visited the U.S. at the time Germany was going through these, this crisis was that he noticed, he, he said Protestantism, I mean, he said America has Protestantism without a reformation. Mm. And so he, he, that was one of his big critiques. He said American churches do not understand themselves as churches but denominations. It is not oriented toward the creed as the standard that determines the church, its basic identity, or if you put it, sort of the biblical worldview. Right. Um, and so he, he, he wants to say that sort of by the emphasis on denomination, it put it more on this is something that um, is of social utility hmm. rather than um, constituting our Christian identity. Right. And right. so doctrine takes a back seat. And it's you. It's utility takes right. a front seat, and it's usually right. it's social or political utility. Right. Um, and and so and then he saw the other thing. He said is that tolerance became because because doctrine took such a back seat, and you're trying to include so many denominations and people getting along. Tolerance takes a front seat, yeah. and doctrinal truth claims go to the back seat. Yeah. And so he was seeing that the 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 church actually was setting up similar conditions to what Germany had create ambiguity and the conditions for a political crisis because the the theological grounding for the church's public response was being ripped away the same way that it was happening in Germany and they said the other one was this blurring of the difference between freedom in the enlightenment contexts that we'll get to and gospel freedom 
Mm. And he said that Americans didn't understand that freedom in the biblical, in the evangelical sense, is freedom to proclaim an unpopular truth, which is the word. Mm. And it means the freedom to do it whether or not you're granted that freedom from the state or anything else. And he mm. said Americans often flip that and said, no, wait a minute, our Constitution gives us certain institutional right. freedoms. And he said right. what ends up happening is we end up weakening the evangelical voice because we're so much spending our time protecting our cultural ability to do what we say and want that we lose the freedom to actually speak an unpopular hmm. and uncool truth. Yeah, And I yeah. think this is where sort of Barman's return to a confessional Christian identity, that scripture is the heart of all things, that Christ is Lord of all things, and that a second authoritative voice we cannot compromise with if it isn't in continuity with right. those things. Right. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, this is a, a, tr a tremendous uh, sort of... Uh, framework within which to, to kind of think about what we face, you know, as Christians dealing with the, the situation on the ground that we have today. I mean, um, there really is, I think, a kind of uh, externalization of freedom. In other words, freedom is a is a, an absence of external uh, impediments. Mm -hmm. Freedom is not a kind of a spiritually oriented kind of thing that you possess regardless of where you are. Mm -hmm. um, because you have been liberated by God, as as, as you stated, to to proclaim the truth, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm I'm assuming that that proclamation is with your life, yeah. as well as with your your words and how you order your your mm -hmm. your, your relationships and all that kind of thing. And um, now, yeah, you, you may you, obviously you can face resistance, but that's what that's what we call the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> And sometimes the world has the, the government on its side. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know? uh, so, uh, you know, there can be consequences for, for being true, for being free. Yeah. You can be in prison for being free. That's right. And Paul saw himself, <laughs> right, St. Paul, right, as right. free, even though he was in chains. Right. I mean, this is the, right. uh, the, you know, this is the kind of thing I think Bonhoeffer was after. You know, you know thinking about, you know, the, our friends, the social justice warrior people yeah. and all that kind of stuff, you know, they're always appalled when you get to like the New Testament household codes, or you get to you know the status of slaves in the empire. Yeah. They're appalled that that Paul doesn't take a public stand, like Amos, calling for the you know the the emancipation of, of slaves across the the yeah. world. And uh, but but Paul, I think, understood this point. Obviously, he understood this yeah. point. This is where the Germans got the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that there is a that this inner that this this is not inner. I don't mean it in, in that sort of privatistic you know, sort yeah. of sense. But that this this kind of freedom is more real than any kind of freedom that you can sort of uh, you know legislate, uh, enact. I know people who are free today. Politically, who are slaves all the way down. All the way down. And I think the church, in, I think the church's witness, I think, is sitting in this place. It's much more of a slave than it is free mm -hmm. in, in response to the gospel. I mean, you know, and I, and I do think there is this, when you can give up all and follow Christ, when you have the ability to lay your life down and your, you know, your claims to justice down in this world for the justification that Christ gives, right. you actually begin to enter into that, that you know, that what Karl Barth would call life in the third dimension. You know, mm -hmm. the ability to live in, in the freedom 
that uh, transcends the current temporal limits that are placing you in, in bondage in every other way. This reminds me of a great yeah. Far Side cartoon. You remember the Far Side? <laughs> I do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's this guy in hell. <laughs> And he's just whistling, yeah. and he's happy, and he's, I think he's singing something like, always look on the bright side, and the devils are saying, we're just not getting to that guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, well, that's what we're talking about, right? Well, Isn't that a beautiful thing? It is, it is. It, and, but I, I think that is, that's, that's something that is one of the places lost, is the, the way in which... Um, and, you know, I think Glenn's going to go somewhere with this in, in, in you know, the next thing we're talking about, the way in which liberation and, and genuine Christian freedom, it can shape a distinct social form and different social forms, and yet it is something that is always transcendent to them. And so because of that, um, you can genuinely be in a set of sinful social structures, or sin has impacted social structures, and yet you can be still free in right. the gospel within them. Right. Because your loyalty is to the transcendent God in Christ. It is not to the, you know, the temporal um, perfect expression of justice in a here and now prior to the, the consummation of all things. Now, we know where this, <laughs> the, the social justice warriors always go when we bring up this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're just like those guys in the Old South, the, you know, before the Civil War, you know, you're just trying to justify the yeah. social conditions that lead to, that, you know, leave people oppressed, da 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 da, yeah. da. And, yeah. and what, what those guys, I think, uh, are, are sort of implying mm -hmm. is that you know we have it within our power to bring heaven on earth yeah. and perpetually yeah. that there's that there are no sorts there's there's no sort of uh, kind of fluctuation to history that history has a, a trajectory yeah. that's always yeah. positive yeah. and I think that many of the things that you know led to the crisis and liberalism in the 20th century were things that called that into question the depression the great you know, the Great War, the First World War, the Second World War, all kinds of stuff, the Holocaust. You know, that's why Niebuhr was able to be heard in the 50s and 60s. You know, the, the, the crisis of faith that those people... But it was a, just astounding to me is how that sort of naive faith is back. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the, the questions that I always want to ask is uh, uh, revolve around things like what makes you think you're going to get it right this time? That's right. Every other utopian vision has ended in totalitarianism and abuses worse than those which they... Yeah, I'll do another... Uh, yeah. Abuses worse than the ones that they were protesting against. Right. Everyone, without okay. exception. Right. Yeah. right. So what makes you think your utopia is going to succeed any better than these others? Because I'm innocent. I'm genuinely unfold. Also, let, let's <laughs> add, by the way, I thought you didn't believe in teleology. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, right. I think the right. metaphor, it's used in another context, but the, the metaphor of what's going on with a lot of these people is they're just reshuffling the decks on the Titanic. The furniture on yeah, the Titanic. Right, right. Um, so yeah, that will benefit some at one point. They'll benefit others at another. But nevertheless, it's still a sinking ship because what you're dealing with is something that has not been brought to cons you know, consummation. Right. And and I think where it is is what they have is an immanentized notion of the work of the spirit. The spirit mm -hmm. is working through our social action. That there's Hegel and Marx. 
all of that right. eminentizes Imin it. Eminentizing the eschaton. Eschaton. Right, right, and so right. because of that, they see their action as actually bringing the kingdom in rather than actually, like Karl Barth would actually say, it's attesting to, our actions only attest to the work of Christ, which is always going to be an inbreak and something discontinued discontinuous right. with our human action. It's going to first have to negate it before it can actually bring it up into its service. And they miss that. Mm -hmm. And so they basically are just um, reshuffling the sinful world into a different social right. set of uh, sinful social hierarchies. And the other thing that we mentioned a while ago is the notion of rights coming from government. Right. Um, evangelicals have fallen into this trap too often. Yeah. But the founders were very clear and correct that our fundamental rights come from God and therefore government can't touch them. Transcendent grounding. And yet right. we right. act pretty regularly as if our rights functionally do come from the government. We're going to rely on the government to protect them. We're going to rely on the government to enforce the laws and all of that. And that's our protection that we've got the Constitution and now we've got the Supreme Court. Yeah. Right. right. But the fact is that's not where they come from. That's right. right. And that's not to imply that, you know, this is one of those things we always have to do. That's not to imply that we don't care about people. Sure. And, and <laughs> traditions right. and, and a just social order and all that kind of thing. That's right. But uh, we know that it, it's always provisional. It's always for a, a time. America has got a, an end point. That's right. This is not, we're, this is not it's the not kingdom, the kingdom of, of God. <laughs> there will be some day when, uh, you know, if, if, the, if, you know, the, the world can go, you know, goes on, history continues, uh, where people will look back at the United States in the way we look back at Rome now, or Nineveh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For and those who know what Nineveh is. <laughs> that they'll look back and will say, wow, that was a really fascinating time. <laughs> All kinds of crazy philosophies were floating around in those days. Um, there was this thing called the Theology Pugcast, yeah. a bright light shining in a dark time. <laughs> the dark ages, the other dark ages. <laughs> All those Pugcasts are being, are being preserved now. <laughs> what, what, what was the earliest? Um, uh, 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 what is the one th during Vietnam? Um, notes from the... the Underground? Front, yeah, or right. from the front line. Of course, oh. notes from the underground with Dostoevsky, too, right? Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, we should probably be, uh, you know, uh, we're at a point now where we should kind of wrap things up. Uh, anything that you have to add, Glenn, before we do? Yeah. Um, it's popular these days to accuse anyone that you don't like being a Nazi, as was said before. Right. But um, what is particularly striking, it seems to me, looking at the Barman Declaration and the context in which it was written, uh, the context in which they met is the degree to which they were responding to a church <clears throat> that was doing its best to stay relevant to the cultural currents of their day. Right. And, you know, we can decry that as Nazism and all of that, that this was obviously, you know, a, a wrong and evil movement. But the question is, is what they're doing any different from right. what mainstream evangelicalism in America or progressive evangelicalism in America or any of these other things are doing? Yeah. They're right. busy running, letting the culture dictate their right. values, the norms, the other kinds of things that they're, they're doing. 
They're letting the culture dictate the agenda and trying to follow it and to stay relevant. And Barman, it seems to me, is a real challenge to us to realize that relevance comes only from faithfulness to scripture, not from keeping up with the currents of the culture. Right. Yeah, I think that's great. Just remind us again, Tom, of when the Barman Declaration was was uh, signed. 1934. So 34. I mean, the Nazis had a whole lot of evil to 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 to, to you Continue know. Continue uh, Yeah, out ahead of them at this point. You know, at at that point, you know, what were the things that they that people that those guys could point to? There were probably ideas more than anything. They were, yeah. you know, they didn't have. You know, events as so yeah. much. Maybe they were disturbed by a bunch of guys in brown shirts walking around. Yeah, but, yeah. but they didn't. They didn't have the. They didn't have the Holocaust to look back at. That's they right. didn't have the, the that kind of stuff to inform this declaration. And, and yeah, and, and there is. Uh, if you look at the time, you have this sort of. You still have this kind of social innocence and family life on one hand going on with this heinous evil behind and, and you know you know below the belt and you know it, you know there's all kinds of questions about how much people knew and when they knew it but one of the things you clearly see is just the church's compromise in the way in which other things took precedence over the lordship of Christ whether it was their own security their they, their vindictiveness against the Versailles treaty you can get into that another time I mean, there was a whole lot of issues there that could have raised really that question um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of can, can end with just a, a couple of points. I mean, one would be that if I were doing the Barman Declaration today, maybe at some point we'll have to do something very yeah, similar. Right, right. Maybe it's a good, good thing to start thinking about. But one of the things would be emphasizing similarly to what I think they were addressing there. They were, they were addressing a sort of perverse natural theology, which equated um, basically the gospel with um, having to kind of accommodate itself to a, a cultural and social, you know, view of things. Uh, right. Uh, um, but I think they were already dealing with the fact that creation, the created order, and the moral order that historic Christianity embraced had been been uh, removed and replaced with this Schleiermarkian uh, and sort of uh, cultural Christianity. And so, and I think, again, in our time, it's a similar thing. We need to restore the historic doctrine of creation in its yes. moral order. And that would have to be something at the heart of our return to the Lordship of Christ. And it also gives us a basis to critique culture. Yes. That's what we don't have today. Yes, that's right. And so, um, you know, I'll end with kind of this kind of, um, the point of all of this in Barman was affirming Christ's Lordship against the inroads of cultural self-assertion. But their article one was, Jesus Christ, as he is attested for us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God which we have to hear which we have to trust, obey in life, and in death. Wow. And I think that kind of wrapped up the, the core of what they were confronting, that yes, we need to live it out, but if this means drawing the line to the point of death, then uh, this is where the line needs to be drawn. And that's what some of them experienced. Well, on that sober note, why don't we wrap up? Well, thanks a lot, folks, for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate uh, you spending uh, your time with us, and we uh, we don't take it for granted at all. Thank you very much, and bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye now.